This is Software Engineering Radio, the podcast for professional developers on the web at se-radio.net. SE Radio is brought to you by the IEEE Computer Society and by IEEE Software Magazine. Online at computer.org slash software. This is Nate Black for Software Engineering Radio. My guest today is Jean-Denis Grez. Jean-Denis is head of engineering at Plaid, the technology company giving developers access to the financial system and the tools to build many of the most influential applications and services, such as those provided by PayPal, Venmo, Coinbase, Robinhood, and many others. Prior to joining Plaid, Jean-Denis was director of engineering at Dropbox, where he led the growth, identity, notifications, paper, and payments teams. Prior to Dropbox, Jean-Denis worked in FinTech in New York and has CS degrees from Columbia, as well as a JD from Harvard Law School. Jean-Denis, welcome to Software Engineering Radio. Cool. Thanks so much for having me, Nate. It's great to have you. Jean-Denis, you have a unique perspective on the the phase of growth that startups face when they already have some existing products and they're trying to figure out how to get from where they are to building new products while keeping everything happy as far as customer expectations go. You have referred to this concept as engineering maturity. Can uh, we give a quick definition about what engineering maturity is? Yeah, for sure. So everyone's dream is to have an organization which has the capabilities and skills that are necessary to achieve kind of its goals, right? Its business goals to, to, to meet like whatever customer demand that it has. And I think what's most interesting when you're working at a, you know, at a company that's fast growing is you will never have the adequate maturity relative to the problems that you have because, you know, demand and growth is forcing you to scale so quickly. And when I say scale, I mean both scale, obviously your software and, and the product that you're building, but also, no, the org itself, you know, and that could be hiring. It could be just becoming having better processes for how you operate as a group. And um, what's been interesting to me is, like, if if you talk to a lot of heads of engineering or or, or managers in different orgs, they're all struggling with the idea of like, hey, how do I how do I level up my org? Uh, how do I level up my team? But there's no like consistent way to think about it. You know, most often people look at the thing that's the most broken uh, at their company and then they're like, okay, well, the, you know, this is broken. This, this is not working. Like our, the way we interview people is not scaling or the way we kind of do on call isn't working anymore or whatnot. They look at this one problem and then they, you know, they're smart people. So they, they, they address it, right? They either talk to uh, companies that are quote more mature and that have figured out how to do that. They get a bunch of input and then they, you know, they do organizational changes to address the problem. And I think that's that's great, but the the problem with it is it it leaves you in more of a responsive mode because what you're what you have to do is you have to wait for things to break to start to think about the solution. And and you know I, I think the the common solution to that is actually to generally hire kind of a, a head of engineering or a VP engineering that has seen the growth before. With the idea being that you know because they've seen like a larger successful organization run. They understand the delta between where you are as a startup today and where you need to be tomorrow to be successful. And I think that's like a it's a very adequate solution, but it's a very like person centric solution to the problem. You know, and as an engineer, you I always think of of you you don't want a bus factor, right? You don't you don't want problems that just rely on a specific kind of person for you to be successful. So 
you know, over over the past you know couple of years that I've seen kind of this happen, you know, when I was when I was at Dropbox, and now as we're kind of you know growing very fast at, at Plaid and kind of reencountering some of these same lessons, I've been thinking about how do we how would we define a framework for both like defining and leveling up uh, an organization's level of quote engineering maturity. I see. So one approach would be to just address problems in an ad hoc fashion and you're looking for something more holistic but when you say like you you have a framework you want a framework for leveling up it kind of sounds like some kind of gamification system is it is something like that or, or something else i think i mean i think of it more as a roadmap, although I think if you do it right, it'll actually lead to the organization naturally wanting to level up. And and in, in that sense, you 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 would benefit from kind of a, a gamification angle to it. So I think like actually a really good, a really easy way to think about this is, uh, and I'm sure most people in the audience will be familiar with this if they work at, at companies of any size, it's, it's levels, right? Uh, and titles that are given to employees. So at most companies, right, you, when you join, you're, you're leveled as an engineer. Maybe you're like level one, right? And then after 18 months, if you achieve some objective set of things, then you might get a promotion to level two. And then, uh, you know, after another like two years of work, you might become L3. And then at some point, you might become a senior engineer or a staff engineer or, you know, maybe a principal engineer. And so, you know, all these companies, they have, they have a level map and with an objective set of criteria of what they expect somebody to do well in order to get to the next level, um, right? And that's like pretty standard in the industry. I'm talking about building something equivalent kind of at the org level and at the system level so that the org as a whole realizes, hey, as an org, we are like a level two org because there's these capabilities that we haven't developed yet. And like the natural evolution for us is to start to develop those capabilities, you know, before things break so much, right? Um, and I think you, you can actually use this approach like pretty broadly, right? You can apply it at the at the individual level, and, and most companies do that. You can apply it at the org level, which is basically what I want to argue for uh, in the podcast. But you can also apply it, you know, at the team level, like even within you know any kind of uh, engineering driven company, you'll have different teams that'll have different levels of, of maturity, right? Some teams already, you know, they have a very well developed on call. They have a, a way to get inputs from for product requirements from a number of teams. They have a way to they have a like very set process for you know getting that into like a great product and so on and so forth. But there might be other teams that for whatever reason you spun them up later uh, and they haven't had time to develop. Uh, that full skill set. And so then if you think about it at the team level, it gives an incentive actually for managers to want to like objectively like level up their team, right? Um, Because they know what they have to do to get that next level of capabilities. And then it serves another function, which is if other people in the org understand, have like a framework mentally for understanding how mature different parts of your engineering kind of function are, then that means they can have, like, they can set the right set of expectations about what they can expect from someone else uh, within the company. And I think that part's really important because I think what you, any fast growing engineering world where they'll have, they'll experience times where some teams are like way ahead of the game, relatively speaking, and and others are kind of catching up and struggling, right? So you might have a, a really, really strong product engineering team that's like, that's like running really well, but for whatever reason, you didn't have the time to invest enough in platform and your SRE team. And so SRE, relatively speaking, just doesn't, just not yet operating at the level of product. And like, how do you realize in that, in a way that's not blamey and where kind of SRE realizes, hey, this is the next set of things we need to like pick up on if we're going to be able to support the rest of engineering really successfully. When I think about levels that individuals would have 
it makes sense that I would expect a senior engineer or architect or principal, whatever their title happened to be, to have a higher level of maturity and capability than a junior engineer. And you're saying extend that to the team level so that the right expectations would be there between teams and kind of make things more visible. So right, the key here, right, it's everything is evolutionary, right? You, you, you're looking at lots of small improvements across many dimensions. And over time, you just you ramp up the bar, so to speak. So if you think about a team that owns a number of systems, the lowest level of, of maturity for that team might be their new on-call processes, like all operations are totally manual and ad hoc whenever th- something goes goes wrong. There's no understanding of like the failure domain for the system. Like there's no understanding of, of like the range of things that should that could cause that system not to operate at the desired level anymore. You might have no, you've never done disaster recovery of any sort. So there's like a long list of things that you're going to be defined in for the level level one team just doesn't do anything well. And then you might level up a couple levels. So you might say, okay, where do you want to go to next? So you might be able for on-call, maybe now we have some on-call support. Maybe you have daytime on-call. Instead of all operations being manual and ad hoc, you have playbooks for 50% of the incidents that happen during these like roughly defined kind of on-call periods. The team is only spending less than 30% of its time uh, keeping the systems up. You've done one dis- disaster recovery plan in the last 12 months, right? So some now we've taken everything and we've just been like, hey, we've defined these, these things. Now we're like one level up. It's a little better. And then you might look at a, like a really mature team and then you might say, it's going to look totally different. It's going to be, we have 20, 24-7 on-call support. All alerts that ever happened are remediated automatically, meaning like without uh, any human interference uh, or any, any like uh, human helping it along. You might say you're spending less than 15% of your time keeping the system up. You might have a list of every failure domain that could potentially happen to this system, meaning whenever something goes wrong, it's something that you were expecting potentially to go wrong. Not only have you done regular disaster recovery plan, but you have you've done kind of scale testing uh, in place that mimics like real traffic. And then finally, you have clear SLAs that are defined and that you've met for the past quarter. So now we're talking about right now we're talking about a, a team that if it if it has done all these things right it can it can deliver a service like at a really high level to its customers and that wouldn't even be the ultimate right level like the the top level actually for a system is where you're spending zero time to keep it up you have you have twenty four seven on call but you haven't actually needed it for at least a quarter like every alert is auto remediated. You don't even have a roadmap for the system anymore because it doesn't need any improvements. It, it quote, perfectly meets like the, the needs that the business is, has out of that system for the next like 12 or 24 months, right? And that's like, that's the dream. That's where we're all trying to get to, uh, but basically almost never do. So you define these levels and, and here I've gone through like three or four, but you might really have like, you know, seven to 10. And, and it's objective and it's it's a set of things that like literally every team and within your organization is striving to improve at. And thus it provides a really clear roadmap for like where and how much time you need to invest in foundation to, to get the next level. And, and you kind of set expectations. You say, we expect every six months or so for a team to like up level by one. And so, you know, that way you have an understanding, you know, if you have eight levels and every six months, you, you expect people to up-level you like, it takes four years, right? But at least everything is on a path over four years. 
to get to that perfect maturity. And everyone has a clear understanding of like what it takes to, to step up. As you were describing the process of the team leveling up and the system going more towards stability, it sounds also like the, the, the product itself is evolving. So it seems that the maturity of the team might be tied in some way to the life cycle of the product or maybe the, the company it, itself. Is there a relationship there? How is the maturity of the team related to the maturity or the life cycle of the product? It's a good question. I mean, the the I think the obvious answer is if you have a, a product that's that doesn't change much in terms of its user requirements, then it's like much easier to move up the hierarchy than if you have one that's changing all the time. Meaning, you know, you need to you need to like add capabilities to it all the time. And I think that's the real struggle for any fast growing company between like really moving fast, which by very definition introduces technical debt and organizational debt, you know, or, 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 or addressing that debt and thus moving slower. There's no like, there's really no easy answer to that. I just think as you grow as an org, right, your customers depend on you more. And so regardless of your ability to move fast on the, on the product end and develop new things, you, there's a natural ratcheting up of people's expectations of like your uptime and, and the quality of the service that you provide. And just because of that, you, you have to naturally be able to, to move up um, the ladder. Yes, that you know that does align with the maturity of the product, but I don't think that's necessary, right? You might build something new for your customers, but your customers are not expecting you to even when you launch something new to have to have a higher quality bar, and they're not going to let you go back to like yoloing everything, right? Or if you do, they're just not going to have any trust in that product, and and you know they're not going to use it. And I think you know the, the example that I just gave you was very focused actually on like a system maturity. Like the team maturity version is is will, will be on software things. It'll be like a beginner team. It's like everyone is a the bus factor is is one for like every system. Uh, team meetings uh, are basically the manager telling everybody what to do, but there's no real room for for discussion. You might be forty percent green on your sprint goals, sprint over sprint like 10% of projects are delivered on time, right? Like, like a team might, might look like that. And then a really mature team, it, it won't be focused on the product so much. It will be like, there's a culture of constant feedback or the team is constantly creating ideas and prioritizing new projects versus relying on something clunky like quarterly or semi-annual planning. Every engineer has a career, devo- career development pl- plan that kind of stretches, that, that determines what they need to do to be like to get to the next level or to improve their skill set. You're 90% green on sprint goals. Like team meetings are collaborative and everybody's voice feels heard, right? Like you know, you can take the the leveling approach and you can you can use it at many different levels of abstraction, right? Or you could even abstract it to an org as a whole, which is, you know, you have uh, like a consistent uh, objective interview process that is blind to various diversity limiters. You have an onboarding process that leads to people like understanding not just like the work, but like the culture of the team and so on and so forth. Right? You can you, you can apply the leveling approach to, to just about anything you want, and I think that's very very powerful because it aligns. It, it makes it clear to everybody in the org what you're striving for. It sounded like some of the metrics that you had like uh, on call uh, percentage were related to the team but you said it's system level so is that then potentially cross team at a company level or is it 
you break it down by product or, or how do you actually apply that? Well, I think the systems I mean, I generally owned within a team, so that's even like sub within the team, right? You might have a system where you're not a, you're not able to auto remediate, you know, fifty percent of alerts, but that team might also own another system where that's like easily doable. So that's that's more like the distinction that I meant. I think ideally this works really well in if it overlaps with your management structure, so with your team structure and so on and so forth. It's I haven't actually, it's a, it's a good question. It's not one I've considered before, which is like, you, you could probably build a framework that applies across functions, right? It applies not just to engineering, but to product, or it doesn't just apply to one team, but it, 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 it applies to multiple teams that are working together uh, towards a common goal. I haven't done that because I find like, it's pretty easy to apply at the team level because you just need, right? If you get all the managers and, and, and the org as a whole to like agree on the basic principles, then it just kind of takes care of itself. And then each team figures out what they need to do to get the next level. And you just sit back and watch it happen. Whereas I think if it works across org- like organizational layers, I could see the coordination being difficult, more difficult, but honestly, that's probably worth trying. I w- was thinking about systems being operated maybe by, uh, operations team and also a uh, separate engineering team. But um, maybe the, the assumption here, an exa- example, is that there's a DevOps approach where the team is owning the entire product from end to end, including like the delivery and, and operations. So in other words, this example, or, or maybe the approach might be a really good fit for that, that style. Yeah, you make a good point. I'm, it's funny because you say that like I have and like very much based on how we operate here at Plaid, like I very much have this. Every engineer is also an SRE kind of mentality. But for sure, like if you if you break that up and you you have a more kind of classical like SRE DevOps, like split between SRE DevOps and kind of the the app developers themselves, uh, you 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 might not be able to take things like the SLA and make it part of like a broad definition of engineering maturity. Although you most certainly would want to have it for your SRE and DevOps team. I think, you know, the framework, obviously, like different teams, right, need different things, have different requirements. So I think the strength comes from the, the, the commonalities, like basing it on the commonalities. I don't think that's that's orthogonal to like having some places have like a little bit of a different framework. The reason I, I focus on the commonalities is just there are enough and it really helps align like your everyone on your on your teams to thrive strive for the same things right now obviously if you build the wrong framework by the way if you have the if you have the wrong kind of levels or you you have the wrong things in there or you put too much pressure on people to move up too fast right relative to the needs of the business you're also going to get in lots of trouble right this is the issue with all frameworks is that you know they they're they're the right framework until they're not for your business needs and that's something that you should pay attention to right yeah, that, that brings up a, a point I wanted to talk about, about when it makes sense to invest in maturity, because uh, maturity might be something that's expensive to implement. You might be searching for product market fit if it's early, or you might be at another level of maturity, as, as you just mentioned, where it doesn't make sense to invest anymore. So could, could you talk about that? Like, At what point does it make sense to invest in this area? That question and the like, how much to how much to move fast versus reduce technical debt, or the you know these are like the foundational questions, and they're the reason why uh, I think a lot of engineers get 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 have a lot of job security and 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 are uh, compensated very well for their work because they're they're hard questions, and if there was an easy answer, well, God, we would all benefit from it. I, I think the there are a couple of things I think that are that are really important. Is like my experiences in 
isn't growing teams that have already reached product market fit. So if you're not in product market fit land and you're really iterating really, really quickly, like I don't think any of this matters, to be frank. Uh, there's a Depending on what world you're in, there's probably a baseline around operations uptime, like, I don't know, two or three nines and around security that has to be met for sure. But, you know, before you get to product market fit, you're very small and and everyone's on the same page. You're a team of like 20 to 30 people at most. It doesn't it doesn't matter a ton. I think as soon as you have product market fit and a set of customers that are your your ARR is like a million or whatnot, and you have customers that rely on you day to day to get their work done. I think you have to start thinking about this. And I think the the great thing about the framework is it forces you to think about where you are now and where do you need to be tomorrow or like what's the in the future at some point and then then the decision for you is pretty easy right then then i mean it's pretty easy it's hard but like then you know what to focus you know what you would have to do to be more mature you kind of understand what the next level looks like so you can estimate how much of an investment that is and you can weigh that against the need for like product requirements to move forward now what i've seen in practice at most companies is that if you move up too slowly in maturity at some point, there's a day of reckoning where you have to pay down. And and sometimes I've, I've seen startups do this, right? I've seen startups have to like literally not release features for six months because there's something somewhere that is like so bad and so gnarly that, that they have to address it. I've seen startups basically ignore like the fairness of their recruiting process for too long and then wake up and have very unbalanced teams in terms of either like seniority or the the backgrounds of people on the team. And that can take like years to fix. And it'll hurt your ability to recruit. It'll hurt like your inter- like your culture. So there's 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 all these things that can definitely go bad. And there's a bunch of companies where it's gone bad. And like my the, my recommendation is like you have like you have to be aware and self conscious about these trade offs that you make along the way. And I think the the real like you, what you're kind of asking me is like when does immaturity matter? But you're also asking me a little bit like what is immaturity, right? And I think for me, immaturity is actually not having every team be level one. Like that's not immaturity. Immaturity is actually not even thinking about it. And not having a systemic way to think about it, to think about when you should invest in it, and being just reactive to problems, right? Because by the like by the time a problem hits you on anything like recruiting or your internal culture or the scalability of your systems or whether you've promoted the right people, the managers, like by the by the time it hits you, it's not going to be when you just have one manager that's bad or when you've had like a couple of tough recruits. It's when things are really really broken, and by then you're just in for a world of pain. And there's plenty of companies out there that have they've had to deal with that and they've still been successful in the end. So I'm in no way saying this is the difference between like total failure and success. I'm just saying you're losing velocity. You're not being as like efficient as you could be because you're not being systematic as to how you think about these things. And, you know, that's the that's the reason why every fast growing company wants to hire people who've done it before. Right. Because. Because everyone knows there's like ways you can kind of shoot yourself in the foot. And and then you're still walking, you're limping, right? But you're not sprinting anymore. And I think if you think about this along the way, you can you can see, you can can move pretty fast all the way through. That's a real chicken and egg problem. If you haven't seen it before and haven't dealt with it, that's, I think that's a situation where, you know, how do you begin? Can we go back to uh, an example 
where you were in that situation and you hadn't experienced the level of growth or maturity and like uh, how did you how did you get past it actually really i'm just asking for any any example where um you hadn't had the necessary level of maturity you felt some pain and needed to to get to that level one area for me that that's very interesting is the state of a developer environment at a at a company dev developer like your dev end right you're like your vm whatever you're using to like locally develop what's interesting about it is not there's plenty of like literature and thinking about like hey this is what a great dev end looks like from the perspective of the SRE or platform team that's kind of creating that building block for every engineer to work on. But I think the harder question is how much should, because every, every, every team is building a service, right? So every team has to make sure like their tests have coverage, that the tests are fast, that they run in the dev end just like they do in production. There's like, you have this thing that has a dependency on every every team in your org. And, and one thing that's interesting is Dropbox is great. It's a great company. Many things are great. When I joined, you know, we were like 90 engineers, like a little over 200 people total. The dev end was not was not in a good place. And giving a lot of credit to the the, the CTO at the time and, and and VP of engineering is they realized that and and they invested a lot in getting it into a good place. And the way they did that was by hiring people uh, who'd seen it done well before, which is great. Unfortunately, you know, when I joined Plaid, that left me in a weird place because I was like, well. I know what to do. I know what to do if it's ever really broken, and I know the kind of people I have to go hire to do it. But those people are like way overkill for what you need when you're a 20, pers- 20 engineer company. And I joined Plaid two, two years ago. We were twenty engineers. We're seventy today. So we have like we, we've had a lot of good growth. But like at twenty, we didn't need like a world expert on 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 what your developer environment should look like. And frankly, I was like, I also didn't have. I didn't have a good framework for how you get from like where we were at the time to that perfect world that Dropbox eventually got to when it was like 400 engineers. I had just no, I had no roadmap for it. So then, you know, the only thing you can do is talk to people who've done it before uh, at, at a number of other companies. It's, it's either that or hire someone who's actually like seen through it, but I didn't think I could find just that right profile. So then you just, uh, you know, you, you pick up the Rolodex. Uh, it's like, it's like the non-recruiting version of recruiting because, uh, it's just as hard to get people to want to meet with you, but you know, you, you go and you go talk to a bunch of people and you're like, okay, these companies are companies that have an amazing developer experience, like internally, they've just, they've just built that well. How did they get there? Let's just go talk to them, you know, find like the, the manager over their SRT, SRE team at the time. It may not be the person that's now working at the company working on that, right? It might have been the person that was working at the time, find them, put them in touch with people on your team that are going to work on that problem. Have them spend a bunch of time together and just try to like suck the best practices from them. And the truth is actually like people in Silicon Valley are very, very, if you can get their time, which is hard, but they're very, very generous with the information sharing. Like no one thinks of like their developer environment as a true com- big competitive advantage. It actually kind of is, right? Because it, it affects your overall velocity. But given these are mature companies that don't see themselves as like competing with like a younger startup like we were at the time, they'll make time for you. You get the learnings. And then from that, then you you build kind of a, a maturity framework for that thing where you're like, okay, well, this is where we are. This is where we need to get your steps in between that we're okay with. And this is a rough timeline for how we want to do it. So that's a very like software specific process. But the part that was interesting to me is not, is not like, how do you build a great, great dev VM? It's how do you, how do you incentivize other teams within the org, all the teams that are building services on top of the VM to like, 
mock their services well, to make sure their test coverage is really high. Now, to do all of those things, that can be painful. Like, does that have to come from top down? Is there a way you can provide visibility into those stats so that they want to do it on their own and, and so on and so forth? And I'm not sure the answer we got to that is necessarily the best answer, but just just thinking about it and talking about it and and being like thoughtful about it, not just as a software problem, but as, a, as an org-wide problem, I think makes a world of difference. Um, okay, so you're you're on a journey right now. You're not at the level of 400 engineers like you were at Dropbox. You were you've grown from 20 to 70, and as you try to get to 400, what are some of the the goals or the steps that you're taking? I think we're ahead of the curve, frankly, for all of the main kind of verticals that I think about as part of the maturity framework. So I think, for example, like our recruiting practices in terms of the the interview questions and how we develop new interview questions, how we do feedback, how we run debriefs, the parts being really honest with ourselves about the parts of, of the interview process that are really objective, those where there's more potential for subjective bias, uh, training new interviewers, uh, all that, like for the interviewing dimension, I feel like really, really good about. I feel so good about it that I think we're like, we can probably grow for 24 months and it'll naturally adapt to handle issues, right? We have like a, an, a committee of engineers that are responsible for a lot of those things and they care about it. Like I don't need to get involved at all. It's, it's as good to, it's as high maturity as you could have for a size company. So there's a lot, there's things like that that I'm really, really happy about. Right now, I think top of mind personally for me is our ability to meld in ad hoc work in addition to what we plan for quarterly. And I think I mentioned that a little bit earlier. I was talking about constant prioritization versus using, I said, something clunky like quarterly or biannual planning. So I, in my view of engineering maturity, there's like there's a point where everybody knows what's happening and you're totally ad hoc and you don't even have sprints or quarterly planning and that works really well. And then at some point, coordination breaks down, right? And so hopefully before that, you have sprints and some kind of either quarterly or six week or monthly, whatever works for your company cycle where teams coordinate and you realize dependencies and you set goals that are measurable and whatnot. And I think we, we did that transition super well and, well, super well. We did it, and I think we got eventually to a point that was super good. Quarterly planning is always painful. The next, the next step for us is to get to a point where you don't really need to do quarterly planning because teams are constantly planning and prioritizing. And you're always writing like one-pager proposals for projects. You're always talking to customers and other teams and getting their input. Yeah, like you've gone to a point where like everything's kind of flowing naturally, and you don't need to force a timeline on people. So that's like probably, that's probably the area where I feel we need to, we have the most room for improvement uh, on, 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 on the maturity map. And I'm pretty, pretty excited about driving that forward. The next ones, I mean, the next one's not that interesting, uh, but we, we've operated really well actually without levels uh, until today, but there's lots of issues with not having levels that I think we're starting to kind of bump our head into. So I think that's like another area for improvement in the next 12 months. Like we, we have leveling, but it's not, it's not as like public and clear as it could be. And then the third area, this is not in the maturity framework that I have for, for, for pod. And it's something that I don't really know what to do with right now. And it, it's something I have a lot of questions about. It's how we enable. So, so here's a, here's a scenario. That I love. There's like an engineer that has an idea for something great. It's not planned or anything like that. They spend like 
two days here or there, like implementing a V0 of it. And then it turns out to be awesome. And you have to figure out how to make it part of the org. Like, how do you go from that little internal MVP to something real? I think we have we, 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 we have that happen, but we're not really sure like how to like how to system it, systematize that practice so that more people do it. And I, I think it goes it goes back to the idea of like, how do you reward like creativity, individual people on the team outside of any like organized software engineering process. And that's something that small companies are really good at. And so I wonder if we can keep that moving forward because I see, I'm afraid a little bit less of it is happening as we've grown. And maybe I'm wrong about that one. Maybe it's actually not something that's compatible with a a larger org because I haven't quite seen it done well, but I really want it to be. So I'm going to try to figure out if there's a way to do that. There seems to be a bit of tension there. On one hand, you want things to be predictable, repeatable, reliable, but you want to leave some room for creativity and for unplanned things to spontaneously happen and be able to make a new product that comes out of some engineer or team's creative impulses. It may seem like tension. I think for me, it's I view it more as like, how do you keep this part of the special sauce? How do you keep it as, as you grow? And the reason why it's hard, so every everything else, you know, I mean, when I talked about how interviewing is in a good place and then like all, all that stuff, that's like frameworkized. Like I, we have that, we've got that. I mean, we can mess it up, but we've, we've got it. This is something I don't have a good mental model for and probably not a blog post for me to talk about, probably for someone who's figured out how to do it. But like, maybe you, you talk about it as like, it's the, it's the Google 20% time done right, right? And I say done right because it, it worked for a while at Google and then it just didn't work, right? And then they kind of got rid of it. Like, how do you, how do you keep that that early magic for a company that gets bigger? I don't have an answer, and I don't think it's a today problem for Plaid because we're still pretty small. Uh, but it it'll be a problem maybe in a year or two years or three years, and I'd love to avoid it. And there, I don't have, I actually don't even have a role model that I think does it really well. I can't think of a company that got that super right. That's like thousands of people. If I did, I would go talk to them. Okay, so the leveling system can do a lot of things, but maybe there are some limitations or at least some areas where you haven't applied it yet, like in this uh, 20% time uh, example. But we did talk about the success you had in applying it to recruiting, team dynamics like feedback and those sorts of things. You said it at the organizational level, it applies to leveling. Uh, What are some other areas that uh, that your framework does apply to individual leveling team leveling system like a software system maturity and the org as a whole like those are the things that i've applied to uh applied it to it works best when it's something that's repeatable across different units within your team like it doesn't make a whole lot of sense for maybe like plaid as a whole because we don't know what the future of the company is going to be right like that's ad hoc like product strategy and the challenges ahead by like there's no maturity framework for that it's just it's just that's that's what the founders are for right that's you know they're they're there to help guide the strategy and make the right choices for us and it's tough and you know you're bought into what they can do so i think the, the framework doesn't work at all in things that haven't been done many times before and actually, some of the some of its biggest weaknesses, I think, are when the the people you talk to to build the framework about what better looks like, when their solutions don't actually aren't actually long term sustainable solutions, is another like big failure of it. And this is like one of my great fears with Silicon Valley right now, which is like everyone's emulating a company that's basically like a year and a half to two years older than they are, but like it's not like those are stable 
long-lived businesses that have figured out the best practices either, right? It's like a it's like failed evolution where you're like copying gene patterns before natural selection has been able to take its course. So that's one of the things that that scares me about it. You know, other things that it's not good at, or it has other it has a bunch of failure modes. Like one failure mode is is like going up too fast. We, we were talking, you were talking before about like you know, going too slow. You know, not being able to put enough time into like improving the maturity. I think there's another part of it where you're like way too mature and set in stone for kind of the kind of business that you have and the uncertainty that you're faced. And so then you like overinvest in, like, say you could overinvest in recruiting a certain kind of candidate, and then you wake up one day and you actually need you need like a totally different interviewing process, right? And like all your culture is now like aimed at interviewing a certain kind of person. You don't know what to do about that. So. These are all judgment calls, right? And that's, as I was saying before, that's why we're well, um, well compensated because it's it's not as easy as a science. Was there a specific situation where you uh, overinvested in one area of maturity that you had to scale back? I think I have a fear of doing it almost all the time. Is the way I would word that. I don't think I've. It's a little bit difficult to identify, right? Because it just because seems things seem like they're working really well when you overinvest. So if anything, I, I think I try to, you know, I was talking about like, you, you don't want to wait until the big breakage because then it's too late. But I think that the best thing is you look for the tiniest breakage and that, that, that forces you to take like one step up the ladder. That's, I think, more my approach, how I avoid overinvesting. Okay. What are the signals that you look for that you may, you know, see some problems down the road and you, you, you've said, okay, this is an area where I do need to invest it's pretty, it's honestly, it's really, it's really situation specific. So here, like, so you want, you want to have really good managers, right? And you want managers to care about their people and you want them to have the tools that they need to, to do their job very well. And so, you know, if you're like really mature org, you have like quarterly training for your managers and you've organized like kind of reading group kind of equivalents where managers can share information. You have all this stuff that's happening. Right. And when you're my size, I was like, Oh, we're, we're a good place. I got an external coach for, all of my yams. Uh, I have like a basic setup for like how we do offsites, share information. I'm encouraging like a few information flows between all yams so they kind of know how others are solving problems. And I, I thought that was really good. And I thought I thought that was in a good place. And then I started seeing a couple of people asking me questions that I'd assume they should already know how to do. Like I would assume that they've kind of self-educated to that to, to knowing how to solve that kind of problems. And I heard the same thing three times and it made me feel like, okay, I'm going to solve it the third time in the same way that I have before, which is like in a one-on-one, I'll bring it up and I'll, I'll be a coach or I'll provide some resources for the person to fix this. But like, there's an underlying problem, right? Which is like, there's not enough like self-learning of skills that are necessary as we grow. Like, where is that coming from? That's it, right? It's like, I just, I might've waited in another world. I might've waited until like, much longer to realize that I needed to go to the next level, which is like a more formalized uh, like set of classes on specific topics for, for my managers. Now I know that's something I should probably do like in the next 12 months as opposed to, you know, waiting two years, which is my initial kind of men- mentality for it. Um, you know, was it broken? No. Like, was I totally capable in one-on-ones of, of, of coaching and getting people to think about things better? Yes. But, you know, um, I think it suggested to me that, that, there was, there was this dimension where we, we needed to step up because people had problems that they weren't necessarily fully equipped to, to face. In episode 306, Managing the Unmanageable with Ron Lichty, he mentioned that it's pretty much the, the state of the art today that 
companies don't have training for their managers. In fact, like he's, he said, raise your hand if you are a manager and if you had training the first day you started and uh, pretty much nobody had. You said that you expected a certain level of self-learning for the managers, but that you realized that you needed some systematized way of training them. What was the, the steps that you took to get there? So I haven't taken them, right? You know what I mean? Like the, you, this is the exam. This is an example of a place where I feel like I need to put that in place. Like it's important. Generally, at smaller companies, like the maturity would be around coaching, right? So you, so generally, like someone encounters problem, is there somebody with more experience that can coach them to solve it, right? And that I think that's very true for like a kind of management world as well. So, you know, one of my managers is like a hiring, they've become a hiring manager, they've encountered a a candidate with that they kind of can't type, they haven't encountered before, they don't even, they don't know how to create an interview loop for it, right? Because it's like a new kind of candidate role that they're doing. Okay, I can coach and help them to do that. But at some point, that's going to happen like enough in the org that we should just like systematize like, hey, how do you create new interview loops, right? I'm not saying that's the like most important thing that's, that's, that's coming up right now. Generally, you would just get an external coach, right? Because that the external coach will be someone with much more experience that's not in the org, so they're not, you know, they have a they have an independent kind of viewpoint on things, and that should do that should do most of it. But if you realize it's systemic, then yeah, you should totally do training. I, I you know, on that episode, I think I, I agree that it's there are not a lot of companies where the day you become an uh, NEM, like you go through like a formal like training immediately. But I, I mean, for sure at you know, companies of, of 500 plus, there is a, there, I mean, a, a lot that I know there actually is like a, like a, a framework for learning. How do you manage execution? How do you manage people and grow a team? How do you recruit? How do you set culture? How do you create strategy? How do you create narratives? Right. There are like space classes through the time, but that's like a pretty common practice. Uh, I think today, I, I think of it as a best practice among, among companies. I just didn't think it was something I would invest in until, you know, we were like 200. Um, but now I see value in it. And it doesn't, you know, that's just like, that's just one example. So I think there is like a, a historically, the, you know, the, and I say historically, I say like maybe 10 years ago, maybe that there's, I always think of like early Google where like tech leads would become managers and they had this, the, the role, the TLM role. And I think management wasn't seen necessarily as much as a separate skill set. But I, in my experience, that's not, um, that's not the reality of at least best in class among, among new startups, like, you know, places like, like Plaid, I think, but like Stripe and, and Dropbox take management training, uh, and evaluation based on like managing ability, not just, you know, technical contribution, like very seriously. Let's talk a little bit about how the engineering organization is set up from a management perspective. How do you set things up for success in terms of, um, engineering maturity? What are the the main steps that you take? It's a very broad question, right? Because we do like 80 things, right? So like an example, like a very concrete example from right now is we're in the process of ramping up some of our SLAs across all teams, right? So this is like uptime, reliability, latency. We've had those where we're, we're rushing it up what they look like, which is just part of, you know, being more mature as a team. It's like, you know, you add nines and you lower latency and you kind of push people to have better playbooks and more uptime and spend less time on on keeping systems up. So one part of that that's been interesting for us is like how engineering and support work together and how we kind of provide SLAs on turnaround time for support tickets. And I think Something that was not in the framework before that I think I would now add and would think much more seriously about 
uh, is like around common tooling being part of uh, what it means to be more mature. So can we we started on the journey with some of the support stuff and and like just different teams did it differently, even though the SLA definitions were the same, right? The way like communication happened, the way you kept stats on whether you were within SLA with, you know, with support, it, it was just done differently. And then we were like, well, that's stupid, right? You should just have a common tool that holds everybody accountable, like in the same way. Um, even though different teams might actually have different SLAs, it's like it's all measured the same way and whatnot. And I thought I thought that was an interesting learning, and it, it kind of it got me thinking about kind of a a lot of the maturity stuff because by definition you wanted to apply across many different teams. It's not necessarily just about words on a piece of paper about what what's your level and what's the next level, right? It's also about how do you make that naturally happen? Like how do you make people want to align across teams? And so I think you know. It's, it's little things like dashboards or tools that can be used by multiple teams go a long way. And so that made me think like, well, actually, maybe a dimension of, of maturity for an org is, is like actually having a tools team that's effective at doing that, right? Not seeing the tools team as, uh, as something that you need just because you, you, you need tooling to exist, but seeing like a tooling team, like a core part of what it means to drive up the maturity of your org. I haven't like taken that thought to its natural conclusion but I think the more I think about it, the more I see the common tooling as like a thread that's allowed yeah, people to be more mature. And, and like the, the word common is the most important one. It's like if everybody uses the same measure for how much time do they spend keeping systems up versus improving the systems, then if you have that measured the same everywhere, then you can start saying like, well, which teams, relatively speaking, are spending too much time keeping systems up, which is a sure sign that those systems aren't as mature as they need to be, right? And once you have a common definition, like that just comes to the fore of the org, whereas before you're just guessing. And tooling is a big part of that, right? Because tooling is what you what you need to be able to measure these things in the same way or, or make it really easy for, for people to measure. Like an, another example right now is uh, like incident response is another thing where, where we're, we're kind of standardizing a lot. And I had to just... Before I had it just like, hey, we need an incident response. Like at the next level of maturity, you have you have that super well defined, and then you know, then you you tell people to do it, and 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 someone like you know, manager goes and does the research and comes up with an incident response playbook, and then you realize, wait, hold on a second, like there's all these steps you have to create a Slack channel and email channel, and these people have to be notified and all that. And I was like, well, what if what if the tools team actually just built that? You know, if they just built a thing where you just go to a page and you're like create incidents. And depending on the level of incident, it just magically created the channels and, and emailed the people and categorized the Jira tickets and like did all the things that you needed. Well, then, oh, suddenly, like now everyone is going to use that. And like every team's naturally going to have a good incident response capability because you're kind of like creating it for them. Well, that's exactly what you meant. But that's like that's a current instance where there's the, the tooling dimension. I don't think is, was that obvious to me from from my experience with this in the past. I, mostly, I think, because it was just done for me. Like, you know, I, I think uh, I just never had to be in a position where where I had to make that part of the approach quite explicitly. You said that like, one, one of the tools you had was to track the SLA. Could you explain what that means? And maybe we can go into that example a little bit more. And just uh, I, th- I think it illustrates pretty well um, your point about tooling, providing a consistent view of maturity across the organization. Yeah. I mean, an SLA is kind of a service level agreement. It's a it's an agreement between generally a, a team and a service that it owns and an external state stakeholder about the uptime 
and performance characteristics and, and maybe other characteristics of, of a system. So you might tell people that, hey, this service is going to be up 99% of the time. And then they know it's going to be down 1% of the time. Which, that would be a bad SLA, but or that would be a, a bad SLA if you're providing a, a service uh, that people rely on. But um, so you have that, right? And, and, and then there's a question. It's like, okay, well, how do you define uptime? Well, there's actually a bunch of different ways to, to define uptime. Right, and so if you if you're just telling teams like, hey, have SLAs, then one team will define uptime as the service is up if uh, for a five minute window, ninety percent of requests are successful. But another team might define it as the service is up is for a one minute window, ninety five percent of requests go through. You'll, you'll just have like di- very you have different definitions, and maybe the thresholds are different, so the times are different. But for uptime, it's like pretty easy, but then for latency, maybe it's a little harder. And as you go down the list of things you want to measure as part of your SLA, you're going to have pretty different uh, definitions. So what you can solve this is to just have one team, generally this would be your platform SRA team, in its in the container or whatever, whatever you're using to, to, to launch and kind of orchestrate and monitor live services, just pre-build like health checks that align with your SLA. So that at least whenever anyone's building any new service now, they don't have to build any dashboards, they don't have to measure anything different. At the very least, they get like a definition of, of a subset of SLA that's consistent across the org. Um, you get it for free. Right. Now they can still choose to change it. They can add, they can add metrics to look at, but at least you you come you come with that common core. And so that that's an example where like the maturity isn't just having SLAs, right? It's having common SLAs. And it's not just having common SLAs. It's like provide tooling so that it's trivial for everybody to have a, a, a common SLA. And those are actually the maturity levels that you would have, right? You would start with just having SLAs and then you would have common SLAs and then you would have tooling that makes SLAs like automatic for every service. That's like the, the kind of mentality that, 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 that I think works really well. Um, and there's there's a bunch of other things like that, right? Like testing coverage is another one. Like do you, if you use different languages at your company, like you're going to have different ways to think about your testing coverage. And then some teams will just ignore it and other teams will pay attention to it. But if you build tooling around measuring the testing coverage and you make it part of the code review process so that when you do a pull request before it's accepted, literally the reviewer can see the delta and the code coverage that you have. And like no one has to think about this happens. It just happens automatically. Then magically, like code coverage will go up, right? And so you you will again, like in, in your maturity map, you'll have a certain level of a, of a system where you say, hey, uh, for code coverage, uh, it doesn't matter. And then you say it matters. And then you say we have common definitions. And then eventually you can say like your, your, your PR won't be accepted if you didn't make the coverage go up. I mean, that's pretty draconian, but, you know, take that one with a grain of salt. But, you know, you, 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 could, you, could, you could dream of that one day. Um, and so for all these things, right, it's like whoever's building, you're, you're taking it from a team by team problem to like a common problem of some common infrastructure that has to be built. But the truth is that in of itself is a maturity level. Like there's some point where org is big enough where like by definition to be mature, you need the common tooling. I don't think it's what you do when you've like 20 engineers, when you're 20 engineers, just focus on like having, you know, smoke tests and, you know, make like some basic thing. But yeah, the tooling dimension, I think, is, is something that definitely at our size, you know, 70 engineers, 200 people total becomes more and more important in a way that I hadn't um, at least consciously realized. At the company or organizational level, the maturity would be based on how you defined one of these 
indicators, like let's say it was testing, you, you, you ran through the examples, so testing doesn't matter, testing does matter, you had kind of a, a common uh, framework, and then it was, you have a criteria, you'd potentially reject a pull request if, it, if the tests don't pass. That's the organization level, but then at the team level, presumably it would be how well were they doing like with testing at whatever, if the organization level requirement was was one thing, like let's say the organizational level requirement was you have tests, how well are they doing based on that criteria? Yeah, so at the org level, you, you literally just have the ladder. You could say we want everybody at the org to be L4 for testing. You could say that. I think it's more like each team can then ask themselves, like, where am I on testing, right? And then as soon as you've got the common measure, some teams are going to be like, oh, my God, coverage is 10%. Like, it's a disaster, right? And then they're going to be like, well, this is everybody knows that we're, we're like level two on the testing scale. Like, let's, let's ramp that up. That's the broad idea behind, behind the approach, right? And then they're incentivized themselves to want to go up. Um, for sure, like once you have extra, like on the SLA example, you have external customers, you have SLAs with the external customers, everybody who can possibly like lower that SLA needs to be involved with it. And that's like an organization wide thing, but that's, that's a little bit different than engineering maturity, right? Cause not everything in engineering maturity naturally impacts like an outside customer directly. Like often it's more, it's more indirect, right? You could have, you could, you could be up all the time without on-call support, by just like having people being paged at any time of the day and like jumping on the problem and fixing it, right? There's like, it's just, that's a pretty tiring approach over time and people are going to burn out, right? It's much easier to do if, you know, you, you only alert when it's really important, if you have specific on-call and all those things. So there's, they're not as tied as, as, as you would think. Is there anything that we didn't cover about engineering maturity that you wanted to talk about? I worked with a, a security engineer a long time ago. We were talking about security and 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 people, in, very smart engineers making silly security mistakes. And and I was like, well, we need to educate the engineers into how you do security. And he was like, you're wrong. What you do is you provide them libraries where if they just do the things they normally do as engineers, the security is taken care of for them. And that is like a that is a powerful insight, right? Because it means if you have internally at your at your company you have a networking library that every everybody needs to use. If you make a version of that library that just takes security, then then no one will make security mistakes. And I think the same thing is true for the the tools. If you if you make tools that naturally align different teams and like push the culture up to be more mature by either measuring things or making clear when things aren't mature, then people will want to do their best work, right? They'll want to step up and adhere to that. One super powerful idea. Probably the best way to communicate this is to to actually write up some public version of the framework and share it. A little bit like some companies have made their level maps public uh, to help kind of other people build level maps for for career progression purposes. There's probably some common version of this that just would be informative for people to look at, uh, so they could see at least for some companies what it might mean, you know, to be more mature on the testing dimension or the uptime dimension or the recruiting dimension or whatnot. And yeah, so if there's one, if there's one takeaway for me is like, I should probably write some version of that up to get these thoughts to be a little more explorable um, than they might be just with words. I think the main point for me is like visibility about these things has just adds a lot of value because it means there's a common framework for people to think about 
not just business impact, which is generally what companies focus a lot on, like what's the impact of, of the work, but also like, you know, how good are engineering practices and like what comes next. Um, so to the, I just want to repeat that point because I think it's, it's really, really important and, and people, people forget the importance of building like a common language, common tooling and a common understanding of like where orgs are going, not just, not just projects. And if you're a fast growing company, you know, your people and your ability of your org to like tackle problems that determines how successful you're going to be to a large extent. Jean-Denis, I think our listeners would be very interested to read more about your framework when you do write it up. So where can they go to follow you or find out more about what you're doing? I would say go to the Plaid blog. And uh, uh, if I have a busy enough uh, holiday season, uh, uh, hopefully something can go out on there in, in January or February. Uh, and just incidentally, if anybody out there just is interested to learn more out of uh, more about Plaid, I would really suggest like the website, the blog, blog.plaid.com. We're doing super well. We have like a huge uh, 2019 ahead of us. So kind of really excited to get people to kind of learn about the company. And if there are listeners who are excited to work here, we are we are hiring all of the engineers, PMs, designers, uh, support, et cetera. Never mind go to market or ops. Uh, to keep being successful for many years. We'll include links to those websites in the show notes. Cool. Thanks again, Jean-Denis. It's been, it's been great having you on. Likewise. Thank you so much, Nate. For Software Engineering Radio, this has been Nate Black. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to SE Radio, an educational program brought to you by IEEE Software Magazine. For more about the podcast, including other episodes, visit our website at se-radio.net. To provide feedback, you can comment on each episode on the website or reach us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, or through our Slack channel at seradio.slack.com. You can also email us at team at sc-radio.net. This and all other episodes of SE Radio is licensed under Creative Commons License 2.5. Thanks for listening.